0: Well, it is great to see all of you this morning. Thank you for coming. Uh, happy Sunday morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday. It's not it's not Easter, but it is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus rose on a Sunday. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get straight into our uh, message for today because it's got a lot of points. In fact, 12, 12 observations plus 5 points in the next 2 subpoints. I mean, we just a little, a little ridiculous, but um, we got to cover it, all of it. So let me... Pray for us, and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you so much. It's such a beautiful morning. Thank you for these people that you brought here, your people, uh, saints that belong to you. I thank you that you have uh, provided this church, this facility, that you brought together believers to come in it together um, to serve you in a, in a localized way and to care for one another in, a, in this body, God, I pray that you'd bless our time now, give us understanding, give us clarity, encourage our hearts, challenge us to make even greater strides in our walk with you. And particularly as we think about manhood, I pray that you would help us as men to listen carefully, to allow ourselves to be convicted, to not shy away from what you call us to. And then for the ladies, too, to listen, to hear what godly maturity in, man, in men looks like, that you would help them to see that. And to consider how to encourage their brothers, and then also as they are called to consider um, a man for marriage, if they are being uh, pursued, we just pray that you give us all wisdom in these important issues, and I pray for these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so let's look here at the top of the sheet. We've been quite a ways already in our discussion of relationships, and. One thing that we noted last week in 1 Corinthians 7 is that there's a theme of freedom throughout 1 Corinthians 7. You are free to marry, and you're free to remain single. Paul's not obligating you to one or the other, but one thing he does note, and this is what I'll emphasize, is that there are advantages, spiritual advantages to being single, and that you're to take that time during your singleness to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's what that time is for, that that gift of singleness is for you to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord, to root yourself in Christ, to pursue godly masculinity, to pursue godly femininity, femininity, to be and pursue that person that God has called you to be. So I would say this to you, don't make it your aim in life to be married. Make it your aim in life to be the man or the woman that God has called you to be. And as you seek that, and as God gives you desires and fulfills your desires, you may be led into marriage, which is a wonderful thing. But I do want to, to emphasize that we, we shouldn't make it our aim to be married, as though everything is subservient to that goal. Paul says that singlehood, singleness is a time to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And as you're securing that undistracted devotion to the Lord, it just might be you will be led into marriage and find a wonderful opportunity for marriage. Praise the Lord. But I, but I believe that what Paul's wanting in 1 Corinthians 7 is for us to so pursue Christ and so long after him and obey him that when it comes to marriage, we not only will have grown in maturity, but we will be able to recognize who it is we should be pursuing, okay? So we want to secure that undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now, what we're going to do now in the next few weeks, we're going to look at what God calls us to be as men. And so, guys, we're going to be listening to what Scripture says about what God calls us to be as men. And then, women, you're going to be hearing what Scripture calls men to be, so you can not only encourage through prayer, through verbal encouragement, but also to be aware of what godly masculinity and godly maturity looks like in a man, so that you can have that discernment and if, with, if you are pursued by a man. And we're going to start with men and we're gonna do a few weeks on guys and then we'll do a few weeks on the ladies. And then after that, we'll begin to then start talking about friendship in the church between men and women. And then our last set of lessons will be on romance. Okay, so that's our our map. So let's start in Genesis chapter two, and three. We're going to make 12 observations about male leadership in Genesis 2 through 3, and a lot of this comes out of a book I wrote in 2017 on manhood. And so if you've read that, this is going to be familiar to you. And if, But even then, there's, there's going to be new material here. But if you haven't, then listen in, and perhaps one day you might want to pick up that book. But we need to make some important observations about manhood in Genesis Two through 3. Moses, the way he's going to lay out the narrative is he is going to be teaching us things about manhood. He doesn't need to come right out and say it. You can tell by the way he structures and frames the narrative in Genesis 2 and 3 that he's going to have some things to say about manhood that we should pick up on, that we should be ready to pick up on. So let's note these observations. Some of them we've already covered, but we're going to just go over those ones that we previously covered briefly. So let's notice first, observation number one, God creates the man first. God creates the man first. Verse seven of chapter two, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. God planted the garden and then he places the man in the garden, verse 15, he took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Okay, so God has created the man, He's established the man in the garden. He's given him an assignment, and then verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die." And you might be thinking, that's just a nice, interesting piece of the narrative. It's an interesting feature of the narrative, but it doesn't have significance. Adam was just created first. It's just God how God designed to do it. I would argue that it's not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary how God, designed to, uh, how God designed man and woman with the man coming first. And the reason I know that, and that's not speculative, is because Paul, when he considers men and women's roles in the church, he's reflecting on Genesis chapter 2, and he says this. Verse 12, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. So now I'm leaning on the inspired apostle to explain to me what's happening in Genesis is there significance with the woman being created after the man or the man being created first is there significance there verse 12 Paul says I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man and this is within the church context rather she is to remain quiet well why would you require such a restriction in the church and he's gonna go on to talk about the qualifications for overseers or the qualifications for elders. So he's, he's tying it to this role of leadership in the church. But he's not only doing that, he's also talking about a function, a function of teaching and exercise authority over men. And he's saying that it's not fitting for the woman to do that, that the man is the, the one who is entrusted with this kind of leadership. And he's going to ground it not in a cultural phenomenon that was happening at the time, he's gonna ground it in creation. He's going to ground it in the order of creation. Verse thirteen: For Adam was formed first. You see that word "for"? He's grounding what he had just previously said. And he's giving you reasons for it now. This is why I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. It's not because uh, Paul didn't like women. Paul actually speaks very highly of women. He would have been uh, uh, well. He would have known well Proverbs thirty-one and the, all the various skills and capacities that women have. And we're going to talk about all those wonderful aspects of femininity and in a little bit. So Paul's not grounding this in something arbitrary. He's not grounding it in his own will. He's grounding it in the way God created. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Full stop. Adam was... So this is why men are to be the ones leading and exercise authority in the church and teaching. Because Adam was created first, then Eve. So... Paul is looking back at the creation order, and he's saying there is such significance there that we can conclude that men are the ones to be teaching and exercising authority in the church, not not women. He goes on, and and then he's going to go on, and now he's going to comment also on the the fall, the chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, what happened there, and this is also going to inform our understanding of of manhood and womanhood. Verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the reality that, and this is going to be significant when we continue to make our observations and look at what else was happening in Genesis 2 and 3. What happened with Adam and Eve was that Eve was deceived. Satan had crept in and tricked her into taking the fruit. He used deception. And we'll see he had a very crafty way of doing that. He had a very specific strategy. That's not ha- so. So Eve sinned out of deception, of being tricked. Adam sinned eyes wide open. He had received the commandment, he was watching it unfold, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he sinned with full knowledge. So one one component here is that the fact that the man is created before the woman signals that the man is intended to have leadership within this relationship between the man and the woman. And Paul's going to take that piece and he's going to apply it all the way down to the church. And not only that, but, but he also indicates that there's a way in which women can be deceived. That men cannot be deceived or are typically not deceived, and therefore they are entrusted with teaching and leadership in the church. Now, this is going to, I think, become even more clear as we work through the Genesis narrative. So let's turn back to Genesis. So I'm leaning on Paul's interpretation here and making this observation. God creates man first. So by your very design, guys, by our very design, God has made us to bear unique leadership responsibility just because of the way that we are made. The man was created first, then the woman. As we'll see, this is not domination. This is not abuse. This is courageous and loving leadership. This is standing between you and the woman when there is danger, which is what we'll see Adam failed to do. So first observation, God creates the man first. Observation number two, God entrusts man with the care and guardianship of the garden. We already saw this, verse 15. He is to work it and keep it. Remember how we said a few weeks ago that this establishes this trifold responsibility of the man to, to lead, protect, and provide. We've already seen the leadership part, Adam is created first. He's going to protect, that's keep, that word keep. He's going to provide, that's the word work. He's placed in the garden. And he's entrusted with the care and guardianship of the garden. The word keep means to guard in other areas of the Old Testament, like to guard the king. That's what he's meant to do. He's, he's entrusted with keeping and guarding and protecting this garden, implying that there was going to be intruders at some point. And he's to work it. He's to be a provider. He's going to find much of his satisfaction and meaning and purpose in work, in labor. And this is before the fall, so not after the fall. Work doesn't come as a result of the fall. Work is given before the fall as a gift to humanity. And it is simply empirically true and, and proven that you will, people generally suffer depression when they have refused to work out of laziness, or are unable to work. Why? Because it's a fundamental component, and this is particularly the case with men, it's a fundamental component of our personhood to work. Now, we're going to see that Adam is going to fail to keep the garden. We don't have any evidence that he failed to work, but that he failed to keep the garden, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, Number three, God entrusts man with a divine commandment. Isn't it interesting? Verse 16, God speaks to Adam and gives him the commandment before Eve is even on the scene. I think given what we've seen with Paul in 1 Timothy 2, and in light of what we've seen already in the text and what we will see, it's reasonable to conclude that there is Significance here in the, the reality that God gives the commandment first to the man. He's entrusting it to the man so that then he would go on to teach his wife and their offspring and be in charge of protecting, that would be part of it, part of the keeping of the garden would be to be protecting the garden from any violation of this commandment. So I think we should see significance here. We, we need to ask, if we're not seeing significance, we need to ask ourselves, why then? Why did God give it to Adam before Eve came along? Why? I, again, I don't think we have room to say that it's arbitrary. So then how would you answer that question as to why? Why would God give it to Adam before Eve comes on the scene, if not to establish that he is going to be the spiritual protector and leader in this situation? So God entrusts the man with the divine commandment. Number four, God creates Eve from Adam's body. So we we noted this a few weeks ago. God says it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever he called the living creature, that was its name, The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he uh, took one of his ribs or his side and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man. He formed into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now again, let's turn, let's lean on our friends, the apostles, these inspired apostles, to explain to us, is there any significance in this reality that God didn't create Eve out of the ground like she did Adam? Why not create her out of the ground right next to him? Just zoop. Remember, he, he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground just like this, right? Formed a, formed a man. Why not do that with the woman? Is there something significant here by the, by the reality that he is He's taking the woman out of the man. Um, Let's see here. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is talking about this issue of head coverings. It's a notoriously difficult passage uh, to figure out exactly what the head coverings were and how they relate to women's hair and so on. But the point is actually pretty clear. He's talking about the relationship between husband and wife and the way they conduct themselves or adorn themselves in certain settings, must be in line with this relationship of man being the leader and the woman, the wife being the one who follows male leadership. It'd be unfitting for them to present themselves in the church in a way, by the way they dressed or whatever they did, that, that distinguished the woman as the leader over the man. That would be unfitting. And Paul, again, he's not grounding this in some sort of cultural Thing or grounding it in himself or his opinion, he's grounding it in the creation. This is remarkable. Verse eight of chapter eleven: For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was the man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, it's hard to even know what what Paul's meaning here because of the angels and the symbol of authority, but. The meaning is clear that the way that the man is created and the woman was created from the man's uh, signals that there is a differ- difference between their roles with regard to leadership. The man bears a unique responsibility to lead and the woman was created for the man. So this observation is important for us guys. And for the ladies, too, to see that God has, by the very way he's created this, designated clear roles. One of the most important and primary is the fact that men have been designated by God and equipped by God and fashioned by God to to be the ones who bear unique role of leadership. All right. Num- observation number five. Hey, we're making pretty good time. So you guys were concerned where you're like, if he spends 20 minutes on each observation, we won't get out of here. We'll still be in here. Click will be preaching in the main service. We'll still be up here. And well, I told you. So observation number six. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, observation number five. That's, that's one way to get through them is to skip one. <laughs> observation number five. The man is to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. So God has created the, the woman out of the man there to be joined together. Therefore, and, and, and so Moses himself saying, this is how creation happened. This is how the man and the woman were created. Therefore, because of the way they were created, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, remember, this is a message on manhood. So what we're noting here is the fact that God says that the man shall leave father and mother. But he doesn't mention that the woman should leave father and mother. Why? Again, we have to ask this question, why? Why leave the, the woman out of it? Well, she is going to obviously leave father and mother because she needs to be joined to her husband. But why mention just the man leaving father and mother? Well, given what we've already seen as we work through the text and how God has designated the man as the leader, if the man doesn't leave father and mother, then the woman won't fully leave father and mother, and they will not fully become that one new family unit that they're supposed to be. And you see this all the time. What happens is, is the man resists that calling to fully leave father and mother, he, he remains emotionally dependent on his parents, he remains financially dependent upon on his parents, he looks to them for security. He doesn't uh, he doesn't attempt to lead his family and designate his family as the new family unit who is in and demonstrate that he is no longer under the authority of his parents. He continues to yield to everything that they want him to do, and he doesn't meet so he's not leaving father and mother. And if he doesn't do that, then what happens is there becomes this entangling between the new family and the family of origin and even the wife's family so that there's this entangling and it causes just a lot of heartache and pain and trouble. Why? Because the man did not fully leave father and mother. I tell you, there, this is one of the biggest issues for married, newly married couples is that the man does not leave his father and his mother. He does not stand up and say, we are a new family unit. We love you, we're going to honor you, but God has called us specifically to to follow him and we are a a new family and I'm the one who's going to be making the decisions now and things are going to look different and we may not be able to do everything you would like us to do. But when the man fails to do that, it causes this enmeshment between the two families that just causes all kinds of trouble. And I've seen it a hundred times. So God is calling the man here to leave father and mother. If he doesn't do it, it won't happen. Okay? Yes, question. Yeah, so that's a—it's a unique. We're in a unique situation here out in the Bay Area. <laughs> um, you won't believe what mon- one million dollars gets you out in North Carolina. It gets you a—it gets you a mansion. Uh, that's no joke. Um, so the issue here is leaving father and mother so that you are able to support your wife, your new family, financially, spiritually, emotionally, and so on. And there could be scenarios where it's uh, feasible for the new family to to live with the uh, uh, parents in order to save up money to have their own place. But you're assuming that you need a house to do that. You don't. And I don't recommend it. And I, I'm just I'm now speaking. There's probably parameters and room for, for doing that. And we know people have done that. And that's fine. And then for a season, we did it. We did it for four months. We, we sold our house in um, Louisville. We had a little condo in Louisville. We had a, a little condo here in Sunnyvale. We sold both. We were homeless for four months. Uh, we lived with Amy's parents until we could find another place. We lived with them in Los Altos for four months. Um, but your question assumes that uh, a young married couple needs a home, needs a house. You don't, you just need a place to live so you can have an apartment. And so I'm speaking just in terms of wisdom, you have to know your situation, you have to know yourself as a man. Are you being led into financial passivity, passivity with regard to work, into laziness by, by relying, still relying upon the financial security of your parents? Or is this something that, you can, that isn't affecting you in that way and that you're actively seeking to save up uh, wealth and so on? Now, the reality is, is, especially here in the Bay Area, you probably would be living with your parents for 10 years to do that. I don't think that's wise. Now, leaving father and mother doesn't necessarily mean that you always have to change ge- uh, geographical locations. There may be times when that needs to happen. And we know people have, have done that, people who are missionaries and, and they just don't have a lot of money. But in terms of what's wise and what's most beneficial, I think most of the time that new family needs to go find their own place. And the, and the man, it's up to the guy to make that figure that out. So then that puts a lot of burden upon the guys, which is just fine. It's just fine to have burdens laid upon our shoulders. Um, and the Holy Spirit will enable us to fulfill those, those callings. So um, there are times that it, I, I just want to be very careful that scripture's not forbidding it absolutely. But this word here where it says leave, father, mother, the word leave actually is a very strong word. And elsewhere, and in a lot of the other passages in the Old Testament, the word means abandon, like never see again like leave you on the side of the road kind of thing. That's what the word means. Now, obviously, we know that God doesn't mean disrespect and utter abandonment because there's going to come a time when you must honor your parents, right? And they might be living with you, which is a beautiful and good thing. But the word's strong. And it must be strong because we are, we as guys, we sometimes can just like that security, you know, but God is saying, he wants to kick us out, kick us out of that, your family, into that new family, start that new family, and be your own uh, family unit under God, following the Lord as he leads you. Because see, he has, a, he has a plan for your family. He has, a, he has a plan for your marriage, and you need to be free, and this is why Jesus speaks so strongly about uh, the natural family, because you need to be free to follow Jesus, you need to be free to lead your family to follow Jesus. And so sometimes unwittingly or even a good intention that that family of origin can can uh, want to lead you in, a, in a, your the, your parents can want to lead you in a particular way. They may be godly and they may have good intention. They want to lead you in a particular way that may not be the way that God is wanting you to go. So you got to leave. So that's how I'd answer your question. Good question. Um. Observation number six. Observation number six. The serpent bypasses the man and goes to the woman. Now, this is where we have to keep in mind everything we've studied up to this point. Remember, Moses is commenting on manhood without having to come out and just say it. Right By the way, he's structuring the narrative. We should be able to pick up on these things, especially now because we have the New Testament informing us. What happens? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And we want to point this out. And what we're going to do here, this, this is Jason Jazz's question. Um, we want to point out that it is very likely that Adam was with Eve the whole time. You asked this question, Jason. You remember asking this question? And I said, wait. I'll see you a long time ago, you've been so patient. So the serpent bypasses the man and goes to the woman. Remember, the man was created first. The man was established in the garden. The man was called to work it and to guard it. The man was entrusted with the commandment. Isn't it interesting that the serpent goes to whom? The woman. Is he not bypassing the man strategically? I would say, yes, he is. Did God actually say? Now, this is important that we establish that it was very likely that Adam was there the whole time because what this does is it demonstrates what happens when men passively stand by and don't fulfill their role to lead, protect, and to provide. And you might be thinking, Derek, I'm not married. Does this apply to me? Yes, but it still applies to single men. And we'll talk specifically uh, how it does apply to you, as uh, I think we'll do that in a couple of weeks when we talk specifically about leadership, protection, and provision. The the serpent um, bypasses the man, goes to the woman. Here are five pieces of evidence, and you can, now this is our little excursus, five pieces of evidence that point to yes when we ask the question, was Adam with Eve when she was tempted? So what I see here is that uh, here's Eve. There's the serpent, so the tree's the serpent. Here's Eve. Adam's just right here in the vicinity, okay? Five reasons why I believe that. Number one is that God had already said when he created Eve, prior to creating Eve, that it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone, and he created them, and then they were to become one flesh. Okay, so this intimacy, this oneness, this nearness, is explicit in the text. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So it's not good for the man to be alone. They are to become uh, become one flesh. They're to be together, and it just it. And let me, I'll back up and say this. These are, this is a cumulative case set of pieces of evidence, okay? It's not, you can take, it's not as though you can take one out and isolate and say that proves it. I'm saying this together is pointing to uh, the, the affirmation that Adam was with Eve when she was tempted. But my, my point here is that this oneness, this togetherness, it's not good for man to be alone, would imply that he would be with her, because he shouldn't be away from her. That's not God's design. Number two, this is important because you can't see this in your English Bibles unless it's noted. Yes, my ESV notes it. Let's watch here. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you uh, will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The you in verses one through five is plural. It's plural, as in Adam and Eve. Did not God say to you? It's plural. You can't see it unless it's noted in your Bible. When God gave the commandment to Adam in verse 16, You, in verse 16, is singular. When God gave the commandment to Adam in verse 16, he said, you, specifically, shall not eat uh, of every tree of the garden. Now, as the serpent is talking to the woman, he is using the plural. Again, implying, I think, that uh, Adam's right there with her. So, he's here. She's here. Adam's in ear earshot. He's talking to her. and He's talking uh, to her, including Adam in this plural. You. That's how I see it. Number three. When they finally eat, it says she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave uh, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I think this is one of the stronger pieces here. This is probably the strongest isn't it already implied that he is with her if she is able to give it to him to eat? So What do I mean? In order to make the transaction and give Adam the fruit, he has to be with her, okay? She doesn't have a potato cannon where she can, you know, those what I'm talking about. You shoot the potato a hundred yards over to the Creekside Park from here. She doesn't have one of those. Yeah, here, check out this room. She doesn't have one of those. She has to hand it to him. So he must be with her. So, why does Moses emphasize that he was with her, if not to say that she was with her the whole time? Number four the reality of nakedness bookends this incident. They are both naked and not ashamed, verse 25. Verse 7 of chapter 3, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. Together made loincloths. Again, just another piece of evidence. Um, Nakedness, nakedness. In between that time, this event happens. Um, Number 5. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden, or in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, this is interesting, because I didn't even realize this until I was, I used to have four pieces of evidence until I read this in a book on systematic theology. Uh, This author named Robert Raymond writes, quote, we are informed in verse three, eight, not that the man and the wife and his wife together hid themselves, but as the Hebrew literally reads, that quote, the man hid himself and the woman herself. And then this is how he summarizes that situation. It was a case of every man for himself, indicating that once the sin happened, it was Adam was out for himself, I gotta hide myself, she was out hiding by herself, implying what? That they were together the whole time and that this is an unusual development, okay? So, those are my five arguments, five reasons why I believe Adam was with her the whole time, which indicts even further his passivity because he simply sat by and watched this whole thing go down as we'll talk about in a moment. But here are two reasons why this matters. Number one, bypassing male leadership is often Satan's first strategy in the marriage. Bypassing male leadership is often Satan's first strategy in the marriage. If he can lull the man to sleep, cause him to be indifferent towards spiritual things or just too tired or too devoted to his work or too devoted to his hobbies, too devoted to hanging out with his buddies, so he can kind of get him out of the sphere of influence and leadership and protection and then he can go straight to the woman and now put upon her the burden of spiritual leadership. And when he can do that, then he's going to have an easier time. Because why? Because the man was created to be the leader, to stand in between the wily serpent and his bride. Say, Adam, at this point, when the serpent started questioning God's word, it's been like, Ah, no, 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 no. He should have stepped right here and said, no, right in between serpent and Eve. He should have stepped right in between, between and said, no, we know what God said. This is not going to happen. Get out of here. But this is Satan's strategy. Uh, number two, Satan will gradually lead a defenseless family into deception. This is Satan's strategy. Satan has a uh, a gradual strategy. Gradualism. This is how he operates. First, um, as we'll see here, he, in, he inter- introduces an atmosphere of doubt. And he gradually works on the family. He works on the woman by introducing doubt about God's word. And I'm I'm going to leave it at that so that we can actually, that is going to be filled out in these next few observations. But that's why it matters. Again, Moses' comment, he was with her. The way he frames the narrative, he is Pointing out, he's indicting Adam, you might say, for passively standing by while the serpent accosts his wife. Observation number seven the serpent questions and misquotes God's word, but the man does nothing. Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? That's not at all what he said. There's already this introducing of doubt. Eve's going to be back on her heels. Adam should have stepped in and said, we know what he said, this is what he said. And he should have just quoted God's word. Who was it a few thousand years later who did exactly that? Jesus. No, this is what God said. That's what Adam should have done. So here's the encouragement. Let me just give you a little encouragement if you're feeling just the weight of failure uh, as, as a guy. Let it be known to your soul that Jesus stood in the place where you absolutely failed to step in the place. Jesus stood in the place where Adam failed to stand in the place. And he stood up for his bride. He defeated Satan's temptations. And now in him, we are fully justified because of what he has done on our behalf. And in him, through the Spirit, we can now set aside and put aside passivity and be courageously decisive. Okay. So the serpent questions and misquotes God's word, but the man does nothing. He should have done something. The fact that he's sitting here passively should be seen as wrong. That's what Moses, I think, is intending. Observation number eight, the serpent contradicts God's word, but the man does nothing. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's just a direct contradiction. I mean, what is Adam thinking? He's there and he's not saying anything. Was he afraid of the serpent? Was he afraid of uh, offending his wife and stepping in and showing leadership? We don't know, but he doesn't do anything. Number Observation number nine. Satan impugns God's character and Adam does nothing. Watch what he says. This is just horrific. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, he's keeping something from you. He's jealous. He's envious. He is... Um, insecure he's keeping something from you because if you take from that tree you're going to be a competitor you're going to be a rival and and that makes God uneasy he is hiding good things from you God is not really that good and at this point Adam should have been ready to take a farming implement to that (laughs) snake that serpent he does not Observation number 10, the woman listens to the lie and disobeys God and the man does nothing. You're, in, you're entrusted with the commandment, you're entrusted to keep the garden, to guard it. Now your bride has been led into utter mortal and eternal danger and you are just hanging out. Just hanging out. The woman listens to the lie and disobeys God, and the man does nothing. He doesn't attempt to correct her course. He doesn't attempt to instruct her. He doesn't attempt to stand in between the uh, man or the serpent and the woman and his wife. And he just lets it happen. Observation number 11 The woman instructs the man to sin, and he does. She took of its fruit, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And now, why do I say instruct? Because verse 17 of chapter three says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat. So she said something, and she is leading now. Now, rather than Adam leading her into righteousness, he's being led by her into unrighteousness because she has been beguiled by Satan. Ultimately, the fault falls upon whom? The man. Now, Eve is going to bear her responsibility. She will also die. She's going to, going to become susceptible to death now, and she's going to have pain and childbearing. She's going to be, have this trouble in her relationship with her husband from this point on. But nevertheless, what you're seeing here is this passivity coming all the way now. It's rather than leading his wife into righteousness, he is now being led by his wife into unrighteousness. And you might be thinking, are you saying that the woman is more evil than the man? No, I'm saying that the man is responsible for letting all this nonsense happen. Let let, let all this nonsense happen. Observation number 12. God goes to the man first. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, "I I heard of you... I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, told you that you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Who sinned first? Who took from the tree first? Who led Adam into sin? Eve. Why didn't God go to Eve first? Why would, why? Why? Well, I think what we've seen so far, we should know the answer. Because God had entrusted Adam with the unique responsibility to lead. And if something in the family happens, it's on Adam's shoulders. If the family starts to go and veer off course, God comes and knocks on the man's door first, just like he does here. He holds the man responsible, even if it was initially her fault that, the, that something had happened. Where was his leadership? And so what I want to encourage us with, I've already done it. Guys, what Moses is doing here is, is showing us what happens when the man is passive. Okay? You, can say, you can think of it this way. All the death and destruction and horror that we see that as the result of sin today is the result of one man's passivity. Letting it all happen. Not fulfilling his role as leader, protector, and provider. I think even here there is a, uh, an unwillingness to provide in a, an appropriate way because what Eve does is she goes after it in a forbidden form of sustenance. Could it be Perhaps this again, this is kind of sanctified speculation at the, very, the sanctified speculation is that could it be that Adam had, had not been um, diligent in the provision aspect? Well, we don 't know. what we do know is that what she went after was a forbidden kind of provision. So I think we have here in Adam's passivity at passivity, his setting aside his responsibility to lead, to protect, and to provide that whole trifold responsibility for him as a man. And all hell is unleashed on earth because of his passivity. So then the conclusion that we need to make as men is that passivity, when it comes to godly leadership, godly protection, and godly provision, will have disastrous effects in our church, in our families, and among our friends. And you might have ideas of leadership in your head which are wrong and distorted. You might admit, when I say leadership, you think abuse, you think domination, you think meanness, you think not um, listening to the important insights of your sisters or your wives or whatever it might be. And that's not what we're talking about when we talk about leadership. We need to flesh this, flesh out what this means because we probably have distorted ideas. But nevertheless, we do need to conclude from this narrative that male passivity will have tremendously negative implications in all the realms in which God has placed us to exercise leadership. And that's what Moses is getting at without telling us explicitly that's what he's getting at. He is indicting Adam for his passivity. Let's get a little more encouragement. before We've already seen this, but I want to point it out again. Uh, Before God is going to curse Adam and Eve, He is first going to curse the serpent and lay judgment upon him in verse 14. And then he's going to promise a redeemer in verse 15. He's going to promise the offspring of the woman. He's going to crush this serpent. It's not going to be Adam because this is going to be a future offspring. So it's not Adam, right? So it's going to be someone other than him that God is going to provide, who's going to undo all this passivity. And then we see Jesus come along in Matthew chapter four. He's, he's brought out into the wilderness and Satan confronts him and say, did God actually say, are you really the son of God? And three times he's assaulted by the serpent and three times he stands in the place in front of his bride, you could say, for the sake of his bride, for the sake of his people, he confronts the serpent three times and says, oh yeah, God said that, God said that, and God said that, flee, and he did. And because Jesus fulfills all righteousness in our place, guys, this burden that we're feel, feeling for all the times that we have yielded and indulged in passivity, all of that can be not only forgiven in Christ, but now we can be re- empowered as, in, as new men to now follow through and grow in godly masculinity, which in, which includes at the very least being intentional, taking initiative, exercising leadership, protecting and providing. And we're going to flesh all of that out over the next couple of weeks. So I wanna stop there to give us five or so minutes for questions and then you guys, I won't go over like I did last time and, and you guys can go and fellowship before church. Yes, Jason. Um, where does uh, humility come into play uh, in this uh, aspect, of, especially regarding to, like, the um, uh, the leadership that a man has uh, and this, you know, ideally the lack of passive, you know, because it may be tempting for, um, for us to, like, look at, you know, the qualities that uh, uh, you should have and then uh, it's, like, I think it would depend on how you define humility. Uh, and that's why a couple of weeks ago when I preached on, the, on humility, you have to rescue humility from its cultural confines because humility in the culture is men not exercising leadership. That is seen by some as inherently domineering and inherently proud. How dare you think that you, just because you're a guy you should exercise leadership? So it's also, it's also defined explicitly. So I can't remember what dictionary I found this in, but it's defined, humility is defined as non-assertiveness. I mean, just imagine if we didn't have male assertiveness during World War II or male assertiveness in situations that require um, tremendous amounts of Uh, strength, or decisiveness, and moral courage, right? So, it just depends on what you mean by humility. Humility is defined in scripture, first and foremost, as a willingness to obey God's word. Isaiah 66, 2. This is who God will look to, the one who trembles at his word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, humility, first and foremost, is yielding to God's Word. What's What's interesting about this whole situation is that humility is getting flipped on its head, and uh, even evangelicals are seeing this this men this desire to lead as inherently proud. When in fact, the unwillingness to follow God's word and to lead is in fact what is proud. So you may feel like, "Well, I just you know I don't I don't want to domineer, and I don't want to, uh, and you shouldn't want to domineer, but." You know, you're kind of having this kind of soft approach to things and not wanting to exercise leadership, and you think that's humble. Actually, that's rebellious, because God has told you as a man to exercise leadership. So we have to first define humility godwardly. Okay. Am I going to obey God? Now, within all those commandments that God has given the man, involved in that is love, genuine concern for women, gentleness. Um it, I think there's also great room for, and this is the Proverbs, for listening to the wisdom that your sisters have. Uh, a wise man listens to advice, Proverbs 12, 15. So he, uh, leadership is not dominating over the people in your charge, it's not closing your ears to what other people have to say and just going your own way. That's not biblical leadership. Biblical godly leadership is fully orbed, it's loving. It has genuine concern. It's courageous. But it is nevertheless real leadership. So um, in terms of avoiding having a high view of ourselves and thinking that we're something when we're nothing, that's exactly why we need to be in regular fellowship with one another so that we can be honest with each other other, and say, hey, brother, I really see you growing in this area, and God's grace is clearly evident in this area, but uh, this this is an area where I think you're, Deficient, And if we're, if we're regularly doing that with one another, we're less likely to have a high view of, our, of ourselves. So that's, that's what pride is. It's thinking highly, too highly of ourselves. And Paul says to us in Romans 12 to have a sober mind, to have good judgment, sober judgment about our gifts and so on. Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah, good question. Yeah, Addison. I follow-up. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, so mm-hmm. how do we not let that become passive and just let the other people's interests dictate your decisions? So, that's a really excellent question. Um, one thing that you do <laughs> is that you are actively pursuing the other person's interests in that, but that doesn't always simply mean whatever they want or desire in the marriage relationship, it means sometimes, as we'll see in a couple weeks, it means making unpopular decisions because you know, based on scripture, what is best for the family. And it may require you making an unpopular decision that you know is gonna be unpopular at the moment, but that you know is gonna pay off in the future because it is precisely for their interest that you're making that decision. Um, And so, um, so when Paul's talking about interests, the, the, actually, the, the the language he's using is very comprehensive. He's, he's talking about the whole of life. So n- not just spiritual interests, but physical interests and temporal interests and, and spiritual interests. But nevertheless, your role as the man, as the husband, is to, to seek continually to know what is best for your wife and for your family. And there may be uh, desires that one's wife has that... You can recognize or are not good, they're not godly, and you need to gently guide in another direction. And frankly, there'll be some of that going on your wife to you as well, and, and it happens a fair amount in our home. Amy has to point out my sin and uh, failures and my desires not being legit. But nevertheless, as being humble, what you're doing is you are laying down your life for the the temporal good and the ultimate good of your bride and considering her more interests is more important than your own sometimes however that requires you making an unpopular decision Um, not because you revel in making people mad but because you know that this is what needs to be done and a man is also a good leader is also one who makes good second decisions So I think you can see when someone is genuinely humble as opposed to exercising kind of abusive leadership, when they make a wrong first decision and then they just dig in their heels and they just keep going with that wrong decision because no one's going to tell me what to do. Good leadership, good godly leadership knows how to make good second decisions. I've made a lot of bad first decisions, okay? But I think... By and large, you can ask Amy, I think I, I'm pretty good about second decisions. Be like, yeah, I blew it there, Kate, okay, this is the way we're going and things work out. So um, you, that's an important piece of the humility part, yeah. Yes, question, Francis. Oh, but the neck is the woman, so the woman's still in charge, like how the head is turned. Oh yeah, Which yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Terrible. There's a so this discussion, yeah. So what Francis is saying is the the language of headship in Ephesians five, is it's sometimes suggested in some evangelical circles that typically lead more towards egalitarian viewpoints that, yeah. The man is the head, but the woman is the neck, and therefore she's directing where the, the head goes. And boy, that is, that is creative, that is clever, but that is just kind of undoing not only that passage, but the whole fabric of scripture in terms of when, what we've seen in terms of, uh, of male leadership. Um, does the man uh, receive good insight from his wife? Yes, all the time. Does he listen to her wisdom? Yes, and he, and he better. Uh, in fact, now it's kind of fun as as our kids are getting older, it's fun to actually include them and say, hey, Colton, what do you think about this? What should we do? And so I'm not only including Amy's uh, in wisdom and insight, but now as Colton's getting older, I'm including his. And uh, so, so the point is simply to say that the man is always the one who's, is, who is leading and you don't want to Undo headship by making these kinds of clever claims that the woman is the neck directing things that just ultimately what that does is that just is going back to uh, Genesis 316 where the temptation of the woman is going to be to rule over the man And this is just one example of that kind of creeping in creatively into the teaching of the church to kind of take the edge off because um, You already know ladies that you're going to be tempted to chafe against uh, male leadership Now, you may chafe against bad male leadership, and it's good, all right? It's good to chafe against bad, domineering, unkind, proud leadership. Um, But you also need to know that your temptation is is going to be to chafe against your husband's leadership and male leadership just in general. Okay, and I think that's an example of what having that's kind of a formalized example. So thank you, Francis, for that. That's real teaching. That's actual teaching that you're referring to. I've read it. I've heard it, and uh, it's it's not in keeping with careful exegesis of Scripture. Uh, Thomas, where does man look to when his own leadership or or his own decisions or leadership quality need to be corrected or disciplined? Is it just the church or 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 society, or parents, or what, how does man correct himself in leadership? Yeah, I would say that it's first and foremost scripture, God, Christ, the local church, um, and then having that grounding, you can you can look elsewhere. We just have to be very careful because the world, while it does, because of God's common grace, does have some right ideas about leadership, uh, it certainly does not have a full orb, and sometimes it has a, a warped view of, of leadership. And so, Uh, we need, yes, first looking to scripture to the local church, uh, resources within the local church and outside the the church universal, outside the local church and the church universal, there's just wonderful resources, books and podcasts and videos, and um, that's where it primarily needs to happen. And then as you're growing in that maturity, then you will be able to kind of uh, discern correction that you might receive from other sources, but you won't be able to discern that correction from other sources unless you're first grounded in scripture and in the local church. So that's what I would say. It is almost ten ten. I don't want to keep you too long. I know you want to have time to talk to one another. Uh, if you do have questions, continue to ask me. We'll continue this study on manhood over the next couple of weeks.